Turn in your Bibles <laughs> to Acts chapter 9. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Oh, man, it's so good to, have, to be back here at the home church. Um, if you missed out on the last two weeks of preaching, please jump onto the church's website. Pastor Eric did an amazing job of navigating through those passages. Um, as you're turning to Acts 9, turn to Acts 9. As you're turning to Acts 9, um, yes, uh, I have an amazing mustache. It's, <laughs> I get that a lot. Um, so what happened was uh, I, I, I'm, I knew that we were going to, I was going on a trip with, some, uh, with a pastor and uh, some other team members to go to India for 12 days to come alongside the church there. And I was super excited about that. And as I'm doing all this research, I'm like, man, all these Indian men are sporting mustaches, like 95% of them. What am I to do? I've got to blend in. To which Pastor Jason reminded me, but you're still white, okay? Just, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of blending that's happening. But still, it'd be a cool way to honor them. And so I go on over there and sure enough, go through the two weeks uh, with the stash and totally did blend in big time. Um, and, but I knew that as soon as I was going to come back, I would have to shave it. I knew that because um, when I kissed Julie goodbye, I'd already shaved the beard off. And when I kissed Julie goodbye, she's like, it's like kissing the Lorax. And so <laughs> that ain't going to happen. And so I'm like, okay, as soon as I get back, I'm going to have to take, take care of this. Until I, I was like, um, like the day before coming back, Julie texts me and says, hey, I ran into James Gonda at church, and he had this idea. Uh, the guy who just led worship, James Gonda. She, she said, you know, he was talking about how this is just some guys really like it, and some girls are absolutely repulsed by it. Um, we, God could use this, you know. <laughs> what if we had a contest? And I said, for, for real? And she said, yeah, for real. And she says, it'll be just for like, you know, between now and your birthday, December 15th, it'll be just like, a, a, you know, a section of time. Um, but, and I think she thought that I would never win. And so on the way to the airport, I'm like making a graphic for us to be able to have like some type of a campaign for this. And so we had a campaign that was just going to be a four-week, a four-day four campaign from Tuesday to Friday. Save the stash or shave the stash. Fundraiser is going to go directly to, to DSM International for widows and orphans work in Honduras, uh, actually in Haiti and in India specifically. And we thought this would be sweet if we were able to raise a thousand bucks or something. That'd be awesome because it's just goofy. And uh, on Friday night at 9 p.m., we put together a video to announce the, the results and to the shave the stash folks brought in $3,175, which is amazing, but not as amazing as the save the stash folks, $6,387 for a grand total, uh, total donations to widows and orphans, $9,562, which is super rad. Yes, that's awesome. While we were in, while in India, one of the things that I, we were just, we, we had a chance to look at um, just the amazing thing that DSM is doing, because if, if you're a widow or an orphan, there's no grace for that. There's no provision for that. This is your fault. You did something in a previous life to warrant your husband dying. You did something in a previous life to warrant the fact that your parents abandoned you. And so there's no grace in that scenario. And so um, the, the Christians are the ones in India that are like, well, we don't believe in class and caste. We don't believe in any of that stuff. We, we actually, Jesus, you know, God became man. So who are we to put ourselves above other people? And so they're the ones making provisions. And so um, I got linked up with it through this guy right here. This, this is Pastor Prabhu. Um, his name is actually Bishop Prabhu because he's over several churches. Just an awesome, humble man. He spent time in uh, Julian in my house, um, spent the night, and we had a chance just to interact with him. And he just pleaded 
um, for pastors to come out and train their pastors. And so one of the key things that we did, myself and another pastor, was train um, and teach the pastors there on, on everything from church conflict management to the doctrine of the Trinity and explaining that within a Hindu context. And so we were able to communicate with uh, 280 pastors in three different locations, and it was, it was amazing. These guys drove hours to get there. They'd spend the night on the concrete streets so that at 7.30 in the morning they could start studying. Just phenomenal. We had a chance, to, um, because of Prabhu's connections, um, he knows uh, a headmaster of a Hindu school that became a Christian. And because of that, he had the ability to allow in whoever he wants to allow in for a religious education. And so he invited our team as Christians to come into the Hindu school and communicate this is the difference between Christianity and all other world religions. And, and he said, yeah, you can have an invitation too. We're like, you mean like allow kids to receive this message? He says, absolutely, do it. And so we're like, Okay, and so it was just phenomenal just to watch that take place. Um, Prabhu hooked us up with the opportunity to have uh, three, three or four different open-air um, opportunities to share the gospel um, and, and for that to be communicated in the street. It's illegal to, to communicate the gospel in that type of platform if we were like seven feet to the side of where we were. But right where we were, because we were on a church property, it was okay, and it was okay for us to amplify it. Um, but if, again, if we walked out into the street, that would have been something that would have been illegal. It's also a gray area whether or not you should do that on government property like a, like a park, but Prabhu hooked us up and we did it in a park, and so that worked out awesome. We had a chance to come alongside and hang out with widows um, and with orphans and just want to see all that is taking, and again, there's lots of ministries that are doing amazing stuff. We just, because our church is partnering with DSM, um, we got a chance to see what's happening there, and so um, when we first showed up, there's, there's 200 plus widows between, actually 230 widows between four different locations and 400 orphans. Again, these are people who had, they were homeless or without hope, and then this group brought them in. And the cool thing is, is that all these kids are raised in a culture where what they celebrate is dance. I mean, they love dance. If you've seen any Bollywood film, there's got to be a dance sequence. I mean, it's like in, like a typical 80s film, has to have a dance sequence in it. Every Bollywood film, except for the dancing's way better. And so these kids practice, and they, like, just take Indian Christian songs, and they, like, just do this amazing choreography, and they, like, just, like, just to honor us when we're there, like, hey, we want to show you what we've got. This kid here on the left, it's amazing. When he got there, he was, like, four or five years old. His legs were, like, 45-degree angles out. They were deformed at birth. And so DSM takes him in and gets some medical treatment and gets him some physical therapy, and now he's doing this crazy stuff, which is just phenomenal. And that was cool, but it was, it was something that was, outside of how cool it was, guys uh, had these amazing dances, and girls had these amazing dances, but one of the things that was frustrating me was this kid. This kid wanders on the stage. Her I found out her name is Hadassah. Hadassah walks on stage and totally is distracting the whole crowd. They're cheering for Hadassah, not the girls who've spent hours after hours after hours on the choreography. She gets the steps right like one out of 100,000. <laughs> And the crowd goes wild. And I'm like, there's a part of me that's just super frustrated with that, knowing that these girls, I'm, I'm trying to look on their face to see if they're as ticked off as I am. And they're not. They're like, just, they're smiling. They're, they're, and they're not just being polite. I'm like, what's the deal? Are they like related to this kid? Whose kid is this? And again, the crowd's just like loving it. And then all of a sudden, my heart just changes. As I'm watching all of these orphan kids celebrate Hadassah. This girl who doesn't belong on the stage. There's no right to be there. She didn't put the time in. She doesn't know the steps. Unqualified in every which way. Unlikely to be on stage for sure. And the crowd loving her and letting her, giving her that space. I'd love to have, say, to have said that this was the only 
group that she infiltrated, but she seemed to do it with every single <laughs> one. Where are the parents? But the reason that I, I started focusing in on her was because I was just blown away with the fact that this, that's us. We don't deserve anything. God bringing us into the family. I mean, this is kind of what we look like when we come into the church, right? Seems like everyone else knows the steps. And we're just like, ah. We don't have, we don't have a clue. And, 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 it, and sometimes we feel like, okay, I joined a small group. I'm starting to get the steps right. And just as much as it looks like we've got, we're starting to get things going in the right direction, we fall off the map and we're like, oh, man, what, what am I doing again? We, I, I just feel so unqualified, so unlikely. And I saw in that the, just the picture of who we are and in the midst of the fact that this girl infiltrated the stage as someone unqualified, undeserving. It's a picture of grace and a picture of us. It's actually a picture of the, the person that we're studying this weekend with the unlikely convert we see in chapter 9. Chapter 9 comes to a point where we see the ridiculous happen. If you've got your Bibles, you're going to want to be there because we're going to go through this verse by verse as we get through this section. And, um, it starts off with chapter 9, verse 1, which starts off with, Meanwhile, Saul. And, and for this, we have to understand the context of what's happening with this guy, Saul. Saul is somebody who is incredible—everything uh, in chapter 8. Like, once, when, when Pastor Eric talked about Stephen getting um, martyred, that was like the— the match that was chucked on the huge burn pile of gasoline, boom, persecution spreading everywhere. Chapter 8 is full of it, and the Christians are scattering. They're either scattering or they're going under the radar in Jerusalem. They don't know what to do. It's crazy. It's freaky. Everything's going every direction. And the person, one of the key guys in charge of this is Saul. He's like the stormtroopers for the Nazis. He's the guy who's like, I will go into the houses. I will go into the synagogues. I will find the people. He's this. He's brilliant. He's articulate. He's an incredible argument maker, and he's violent, which is, that's a terrible combination. I mean, it's kind of like if you took like the famous um, atheist Sam Harris, brilliant, articulate, amazing argument maker, and you married him to Scarface, that's Saul. You got someone who's got all the, the mental ingenuity and, and power and also the ability to draw blood for what he believes in. This is what we see in this passage. And so when we're reading through this, take a look at what we see. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Okay, this isn't just hate speech. This is like hate actions. This is, this is crazy. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, the houses of worship, in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, people who were followers of Jesus before they were called Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The thing that, that's interesting about this beginning part is we see something that's uh, just an attribute of God's work in our life is that God interrupts our path to pursue us. Saul had a ton of dreams, he had goals, and God ruins it. I don't know if you've gone through a cataclysmic thing where it just like disrupted your path, like, like a breakup or a divorce or you got fired or, or you didn't get accepted into some organization that you were applying for or school that you were applying for, where it felt like everything was going in one direction and you knew what you were doing and you felt like one step was leading to the next and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, everything that you thought was going in the right way, everything that was moving with momentum lost its momentum. That's Saul. And that's God's work in Saul's life. 
ruining his dreams, disrupting his path to pursue him. If we continue reading, we see that God not only interrupts our path, but his interruptions disrupt our mental state. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days, three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I don't think I've ever seen this before when I was reading this passage, but I started asking the question, like his lack of a hunger or thirst has nothing to do with his blindness. There's no, psycho, there's no, no physiological connection between I'm blind, therefore I'm not hungry or thirsty. There's no physiological connection. There is, however, an incredible psychological connection. He has had a psychological disruption that's taking place. And again, one of those situations that disrupts your past so greatly that it causes you to the point where you're not even hungry or, or thirsty. That's only happened to me once or twice in my life where for a day, like just 24 hours, I felt like I, I feel so sick to my stomach about what's happened that I don't feel like I even want to eat. Have you had that? Saul's disruption causes him the ability to lose, be totally like just nauseated and, and nauseous and, and, and not wanting to eat anything for three days and not drink anything for three days. He's so messed up by this. Here's why. Every, he knew more about the Bible than most. And all of a sudden, he has to rethink everything about what, it, what, about what the scriptures were about. This is what Jesus did with his disciples. He showed how everything throughout the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to him. But now Saul, who knows it all, is psychologically rewinding the tapes. Wait, hold on a second. Jesus was the solution to what took place in the garden. Jesus is our true exodus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Everything. Everything I've believed, everything I've known, everything I thought I knew, and I had it all packaged up in an amazing packet, has just become uncoiled because I had the foundation of it so off. The people who had it right, I murdered. What kind of a monster am I? That would disrupt your, your ability to be hungry for a couple of days. God interrupts, God's interruptions disrupt our mental state. But not only that, God interrupts another path as well. See, this is the crazy thing. He interrupts not just Saul's path, but someone else's. Take a look at verses 10 and following. In Damascus, okay, Damascus is where Saul was on his way to. The place where he's got papers to do a blitz of each of the synagogues to hunt down Christians and bring them out and put them in shackles and men and women and children, bring them out and bring them back to Jerusalem, right? In Damascus, he's finally there now, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision and, and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord. And by the way, this is not the Ananias who died with Sapphira earlier in Acts. We know that because he's still here. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord? Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I mean, empathize with that just for a second. We've heard about, we've been like taking steps 
to like hide from this guy. We knew he was on the way. And now he's here and you're like, bring him over, invite him in for SpaghettiOs. This is what you want? He's the enemy. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, verse 15, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This gives us the picture that, 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 we, that Saul possibly was not saved on that road to Damascus. He wasn't saved yet. He, he actually, he had an encounter with Jesus, but we don't know for sure if he actually, that was like the conversion point. We do see, however, the fact that this interaction with Ananias disrupts Ananias' path. This is phenomenal because what we see is that God doesn't just interrupt our path when he saves us. He keeps on interrupting our path as we follow him. He's going to continue to course correct us and put us in situations that are awkward. With this guy, and with Ananias, it's like, what in the world? Okay, I, you are asking me not to just share my faith with someone who's moral. You're asking me to share my faith with someone who's dangerous. This person is dangerous. He's dangerous to us. He's blind right now. If my enemy is blind, guess what? He can't see me. And you want me to give him his vision back. And God, the response to God is like, okay, Ananias, you have a platform that's this big. Praise God. That's all I've called you to have. I want you to share your faith with someone so dangerous, so despicable, so notoriously infamous that his platform will be this big. Ananias, to your dying dead day, you'll have this much influence. Praise God. That's all I've called you to have. But I'm asking you to share your faith with someone who will have this much History says that it was Thomas, one of the apostles, that got to India to share his faith with the Indian, Indian people. But you know who's growing their faith? The words in the New Testament of the guy that Ananias shared his faith with. The most unlikely convert, Saul. God interrupted his path to pursue others. Thirdly, God interrupts our path to give us a new beginning. This jumps back to Saul. Immediately, after, after Ananias prays over his eyes, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he went to the buffet. Nope. He got up, and he went and he greeted people and let them know, look, I'm a Christian. I'm on your side now. Nope. He got up, and what? He was baptized. <whistles> I would have eaten first. But after taking some food, he regained his strength. So, before the guy has a graham cracker, before he has a saltine, his vision happens, and he understands everything. I've met Jesus. I understand who Jesus is. I receive Jesus. As a Christian, what is his next step? Be baptized. Why? Because his whole life was proclaiming Jesus is a fraud. Jesus is not the king. Jesus is not a king. He's not a messiah. He's a joke. His people are, aren't good people that believe differently than us. They're dangerous people that should be killed and mitigated. Jesus is not king. That was his public proclamation. He's now a Christian. What's his public proclamation now? Jesus is king. Totally flipped the script. And so the bap baptism was, was a, such an appropriate step because what he was doing is saying, I am identifying with Jesus' death for me. And I've, I've, I've had a conversation with him. He's alive. I'm identifying with his resurrection as well, his life for me. I'm identifying, I'm making a public proclamation, Jesus is king. That's, that wasn't what I always believed, but I'm believing it. 
And from this point on, I'm following it. Not only a new beginning, but we also see God redeeming his unredeemed talents and connecting them to mission. Look what happens next. Like again, Paul is, we call him Paul now. Paul is someone who's so immediately taking action. It's, it's phenomenal. Not only did immediately the scales fall off his eyes, if we jump down to uh, verse 19b, we see this. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues. Hold on. Where was he going initially when he was coming from Jerusalem? With what? Papers to arrest people, to hunt them down. Now he's in the synagogues preaching Jesus as king. How ironic. It's almost as if if Saul had a chance to walk in and listen to himself talking, he'd have to arrest himself. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Proving. He's using all of his information. This is the craziest thing. He was articulate. He, he, he was someone who, who was a great communicator. He was a great argument maker. And he was violent. And now God has redeemed his natural talents. So he's still articulate. People, scholars today are still baffled by his writings in the New Testament. How brilliant and genius they are. He's still articulate. He's still a great argument maker. But instead of making a case against Christ, he's making a case for Christ. And as far as his violence, he used to be so impassioned about what he believed that he was willing to take a life. Now he's so impassioned by what he believes that he's willing to take his own, to allow his own life to be taken for the cause. He was a fanatic before, and now he's a fanatic. Just one time he was a fanatic against Jesus and what he believed, and now he's a fanatic for him. He uses his unredeemed talents and connects them to mission. That's our text today. Let's just go ahead and read just really quickly what happens after that. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, I love this. So in Jerusalem, he's a bad guy, right? He goes to Damascus as a bad guy. He gets saved in Damascus, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem because they know that he's become a good guy. What does he try to do? When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that, that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. Again, using what his natural skill set was, but now for Jesus. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Okay, so the, the Christians were getting a ton of heat, right? Major persecution. One of the key persecutors, Saul. Saul goes off to Damascus, becomes a Christian, comes back, and it doesn't get cooler for them. It's not like, hey, the primary bad guy, he's on our side now, so you guys should be cool with us. Uh-uh. There's even more heat now that Saul's back and now that he's a Christian. So what do they do? They give Saul a vacation. They send him to Tarsus. And then the next verse says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. And it was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So what does that mean for us in 2019? Number one, be the unlikely convert. You want to be obediently stepping into the story of the unlikely convert that we see in Saul. The first thing you could do is to be that unlikely convert. 
I don't assume that because you're in church today that you're a Christian. Again, you might hear, be here because your grandma's brought you hostage or someone promised you food afterwards. If you're not a believer, be the unlikely convert. And if you're like, I just don't believe that God could save me with some of my doubt. Or I don't believe that God could save me after some of the things that I've done. You're not someone who's killed a Christian. Right? Have you been on a genocidal rampage where killing Christians was your Tuesday? If not, you're good. I think that God gives us the, the picture of this unlikely convert in Saul. So from that point forward, not a single person could say, I just don't believe God could forgive me after everything I've done. Because everyone could say, but I can't say that because look at this guy that God saved and rescued in spite of the fact he wasn't just, he wasn't mildly against the idea of Christianity. He was militantly against it. Be the unlikely convert. If you, if you accept Christ, what you're, what you're simply doing is you're receiving salvation that's been afforded to you on the cross by Christ. You're simply receiving something that's been done for you. You're not working for it. You're just receiving the work done for you. And you simply say, I, I repent. I've been against you. I've lived for me. I'm sorry. I put my trust in what you've done on the cross to make right what I made wrong because I can't make it right. And I'm asking you to lead me from this point forward. The power of your Holy Spirit. You do that right now, and you're, you are a follower of Jesus. You've crossed over from death to life. You, all of a sudden, are the unlikely convert. Now, what, what happened with, with Saul as soon as he became a Christian? He went out to eat, right? No, what, what did he do? He got baptized. A lot of people believe that they have to like, go through a, a significant amount of time where they, get, like, they go through some massive master's class on, on, on what it means to be a Christian before they're qualified to be baptized. You don't qualify to be baptized. He's qualified you to be baptized. And so if you get saved today, you're qualified immediately to be baptized. And so I want to tr- challenge you. On your notes, there's like a little QR code. If you just put your phone over that, or the camera on your phone over it, it'll take you right to the baptism page at our church. Or you could just go to the events, um, future, featured events uh, connect part, and it'll take you down, and you can go ahead and select that so that you can be a part of our next baptism service in January. These are my favorite times of the week because these are the opportunities for people to proclaim, Jesus is king. I'm identifying with him. Uh, this doesn't save me. It's a public proclamation of the fact of what he's already done in my life. Be the unlikely convert. If you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're like, well, I don't know if I should be baptized because I don't Just listen, this is for you. You have an opportunity to publicly proclaim what Jesus did for you. That, that's a win. Step into that. He called you to do it. It's, it's awesome. Secondly, lead the unlikely convert. Don't just be the unlikely convert. Lead the unlikely convert. Because you've got these people in your life. You, if, to, be the, to be the unlikely convert, you get to play the role of Paul. To lead the unlikely convert, you get to play the role of Ananias, who's actually going to, to have that gut check moment where he's going to cross the line of sharing his faith with someone who could possibly reject him. In Ananias' case, he was putting his life on the line. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is put your reputation on the line or your popularity, which might seem just as dangerous, but it's not. Lead the unlikely convert, which of course brings us to Kanye. Of course. And again, I, I, this is one of those things that's blown my mind. I don't know how, what, what it's all about, but I, all I know is this, is that Kanye West, like the guy who married Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, that Kanye West, the Kanye West who I couldn't like play any of his songs in church because even the edited versions of, of the songs that are really good would need to be edited 
You know, it's just like, and so it's like one of those things that's just crazy. But all of a sudden, something took place in his life where someone got into his world and really, really led him to the point where he felt, I, I, I need to cross over a line and, and really go all in for Jesus. I need to, to surrender my life to him. He says that he's never going to, like, like, make another secular album. Do I believe that? Eh, I don't know. I don't know if he will or not. But the truth is that his first album out was this, Jesus is King, where every single track on it is proclaiming a gospel message of, of connection to Jesus and, like, spouting scripture. And it's, it's bizarre. Is it an amazing album? No. Does it have some good songs on it? Yeah. In fact, I was, I, we played, Julie and I played the whole album in our van with the kids in the car. If you don't believe miracles can happen, we played an entire Kanye West album in my car with my kids in the car, and we didn't have to, like, you know, like, fast forward or cough at the, you know, at the right parts. It blew my mind. And on top of that, all of a sudden, this message that he's proclaiming is showing up in the weirdest places. Jimmy Kimmel has him out. And across the banner on the bottom of the screen, Jesus is king. He asks him, so are you like a Christian artist now, like a Christian rapper? And Kanye's like, I don't know, I guess. I guess I'm a Christian everything, which is a good answer. He shows up on James Corden. Instead of having carpool karaoke, he has airpool karaoke, where the whole group sings gospel songs, and he gets a chance to be interviewed by James Corden, who asks him the question, what do you and Kim Kardashian do at night? Which is a really messed up question to ask. <laughs> so he says, well, we go up to our bed. And he's like, yes. And, he says, and then Kim Kardashian, she puts on, she puts on the like, TV and watches TV, and I read my Bible. You read your Bible? Yeah, I read my Bible. He's showing up in prisons, and he's proclaiming the fact that even though they're shackled, Jesus, the king, is the one that can actually set them free. And prisons are turning into places of worship. Now, is Kanye West going to do or say something in the future that's going to embarrass Christians as, as a church family? Yes. Why? It's Kanye. And Kanye is a human being, just like you and me. But, he's, but I'll tell you what, the crazy thing is, is this. He has a platform that I don't have. Just like, like, and you know what? A lot of Christians, I don't believe he's really a, a Christian. Well, what did they say about Saul? When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. I guess that's kind of like what we do. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. But with Kanye, we should be praying for him and praying that God continues to use it. But if you think Kanye, if you think that's an amazing story, I mean, you've got to go from ye to Ron Feeney, because Ron Feeney is a local story. Ron Feeney is a guy, some of you know Ron. Ron um, is a guy who, I didn't know Ron before he was a Christian, but apparently he had a pretty awesome reputation for being everything but a Christian. Everything but a Christian. And notoriously so. In fact, people came up to me after the 8 a.m. service and said, I worked with him. You are right. And that, but that's, that's apparently was all out there. But one day he was driving through um, Manuka to get a cup of coffee. He goes across the railroad tracks on Wabina, just south of Cookies. And all of a sudden he sees this blinking light. It was like early in the morning, just like this blinking light on the tracks. And like thought that, thought that was weird, but he just kept on driving. Gets his cup of coffee. He's really distraught. He just had a breakup. And so he's just kind of like hurt and messed up. And he's driving back. And all of a sudden he sees the blinking light again. He realizes it's probably like a cell phone. So he pulls over and he gets the cell phone. And right when he gets it, he's weird. Like there's no scratches on it or anything. It looks like a brand new phone. All of a sudden the phone starts to ring. And he, and he opens it up. He says, hello. And he says, and it was a person who was looking for the owner. And he explained to them, no, I actually, I, I'm not the owner. I just found this, this phone. And he said, oh, you know what? He probably dropped it. We're going hunting. 
and he probably put his phone on, on the truck and forgot about it and drove through town. And just coincidentally, coincidentally, it fell off right in the spot where you saw it. And he says, well, okay, well, can, we, like, can you let him or his, his wife know that I'd like to give it back to them and they can meet me at this time at uh, Manuka uh, Police Station. I said, okay. And so they meet on up later on in the day and the wife comes up to the car and as she gets up to the car, she's a believer, we, I know her. She comes up to the car and she's like, you're having a horrible week, aren't you? And he's like, what? Lady, I just want to give you my, your phone, okay? And she's like, you don't know Jesus. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> Regretting the moment he stopped the car. I should have never pursued the blinky light. And she said, this isn't a, a, a coincidence that, that you found that phone. And he's like, yes, it was. I just was driving by. It fell off my husband's car. Are there any scratches on it? And he's like, no. You think that's a coincidence? He's like, I don't know. She's like, I've got something I need to give you. He's like, no, no, I don't want anything. Just take the phone. She says, no, hold on. She goes back to her car and she gets a book. I don't even know what the book was, but the book inside of it has how to become a Christian and, and leads a person in a prayer of repentance. And she said, I'll take the phone back, but you have to, she's negotiating for her own phone. <laughs> you have to promise me that you will read this and that you will consider praying this prayer. Fine, lady, I'll promise. He gives her the phone. She's gone. And he started to read. And the Holy Spirit convicted his heart. And he became a Christian right there. And then he started attending our church. And then he got baptized at our church. And after that baptism service, my family and I, we were at Culver's because we're health conscious. <laughs> and we're sitting there and we're listening. And a, and a person in a booth, a couple booths away, says, and this person goes to our church. He's talking to someone who doesn't. And he says, dude, you'll never believe what happened at church today. We had a baptism service. Well, that's cool. No, no, you don't understand. Guess who got baptized? Who got baptized? Ron Feeney. Shut up. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Ron, no, no, no. Ron Feeney. Feeney? Feeney? The Feeney we know, Feeney? Yeah, the same guy. He's a Christian? Yeah. He got baptized? He did. Shut up. I was like sitting there and like just beaming. It's like amazing. Why? Because this is what God does. This is Ron Feeney um, on one of the Haiti trips. Um, just like making, it's just phenomenal what God does. God is working through him to this day. Who is Ron Feeney in your world? Who's the person that if you told your Christian friends this person became a Christian, they would say, shut up. Because apparently with Paul, when he became a Christian, people, they, it says that they were baffled. They were baffled. They were in shock. This is the same guy? Who would that be in your world? Who have you been so timid that you haven't shared your faith with them because you're like, they probably know more than me or they've got harder questions than I can answer. Remember what Jesus called you into mission for. Never to be the expert or the specialist. He called you to be what? A witness. A witness tells people what you know. And what you know is that Jesus rescued you. And that you know that Jesus needs to rescue them. As far as bringing them to church, you could just say, listen, I don't have all the answers, but I know that I need Jesus. I know that you need Jesus. I will save you a seat next Sunday. And they're like, well, what service do you go to? 9.30. Oh, then you better save me a seat. Yes, it'll be right there. I will fight people for it. Do that. Lead the unlikely convert. And then thirdly, live out the mission you were converted for. 
You have a skill set, even if it's your availability of time, that God wants to redeem. And if you've been a Christian that thought that, that the best part of Saul's story was the fact that he put his trust in, in Jesus and he started believing correctly, you'd be wrong because it's not the rest of the story. His faith in Jesus was there, and that all of a sudden spurred on, through God's grace, his action. That's the rest of the story. The conversion is just the beginning. You need to live out the mission you were converted for. You were created for, and you weren't created for sitting the bench, spectating. When you go out there after the service and you get to that campus serve wall and you're sensing God wants you to be a part of the 200 plus people we're sending to, to Morris, that's called stepping out in faith. I want you to go out there and, and figure out what it is that you want to do of the things that we need people in this church to do and fill out that thing, fill out the card, put your name on the hook that's corresponding the right thing, go around, cling, Ring that bell real loud. If you're sensing that God wants you to stay here, that he wants to step you up in faith, you go ahead and fill that thing out and you go on the opposite side, the Manuka side, you put it on the hook, and then you ring the bell. I promise no angels will get their wings, but it's going to be phenomenal as people celebrate the fact that the mission is being lived out by this church. Not a group of spectators, not a group of, of bench sitters, but people who are living out the missions they were converted for. You know, in the book of Esther, you have Esther, who was an orphan girl. And she was adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And all of a sudden, she becomes queen. And now she's in a position of privilege and power. And she could influence. But she feels unqualified and undeserving. Who is she to do anything? And Mordecai says something to her. He says, Esther, perhaps you were coming, came into this place for such a time as this. For such a time as this, God has called you to this place to make an impact even though you feel undeserved. Did you know that Esther wasn't her birth name? That was the name that the Persians gave her. You know what her birth name was? Hadassah. Which brings us back to this little girl. Hadassah. The story behind her was greater than just the fact she was on stage and the orphans were swelling with cheering and that my confusion on why in the world they were doing that. I asked, who is Hadassah? Who is this little girl? They said, oh, you don't know the story. This is it's amazing. This family in our church were pregnant, and they went into the hospital, and, and in childbirth, um, the child died. And that same night, someone who had a baby abandoned that baby, orphaned that baby on the doorsteps of, of the hospital and ran away. The hospital staff brought one child that had died out of the room and brought in another child and, and gave the opportunity to adopt her. And that was Hadassah's story. Hadassah didn't belong to that family, but she was adopted into it. The death of that previous child made way for her to come into the family. And so all the kids in that orphanage know Hadassah. All the kids in that, that, that orphanage celebrate Hadassah because they know the story of the child who didn't belong coming in and taking the stage. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one of those unlikely converts like me, the death of God's son made way for you to be adopted into the family. Scripture says that those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. And as children, who are the unlikely adopted kids into the family, we get a chance to celebrate one another as each one of us comes in and takes our stutter steps of leading other people to the Lord. We're not qualified for that, but he tells us to. Volunteering and stepping into mission, we're not qualified for that. We don't have the time for that. But he gives us the ability to do that. And as a church, you can be, can, I can promise you this. We are a crowd of orphan kids who will celebrate you as you take your stutter steps on the stage that God's called you into. Amen?
play the role of Paul, play the role of Ananias, play the role of Hadassah. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you empower us to do just that. Send us out of here with the passion, God, to think clearly about those in our world who don't know you. Not the moral people, not the good people that are just right on the edge, but the people who are far from you, who it's a joke to share our faith with them. Give us the guts to trust you, that they need you just as much as we did. Lord, I pray for the people who are just stepping into the arena of not being a spectator Christian, but someone who's stepping into volunteering and action, Lord, where we get to see this become a part of our life. Lord, I pray that that's also something that they will feel and sense, the livelihood from you. And that too, we will give you the thanks for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.